because if this becomes law, every hospital in the country is going to come to a grinding, screeching halt, and I have no idea where they think they're going to get more psychiatrists. A third of patients in the emergency departments are being seen by PAs and NPs. There's got to be a lot more interesting stuff going on in the world of malpractice than we know about. Hey guys, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, coming to you for the December issue of Risk Management Monthly. Hello, Gregory. Hello, Ricky. You know, I've got my jingle bells running, my hot chocolate here. And in Michigan, you know, it is like minus four degrees, even as we record. So you understand that it isn't Southern California, but we will do the best we can. You know, here we have real Christmas. You know, none of this uh, fake snow, snow out at the mall. I mean, all you got to do is reach out my window and make a snowball. But go ahead. Hey, listen, I'm looking at my new iPhone 10. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a kind of arrangement that Ricky got from some guy who uh, bought it on a whim and decided that was a stupid thing to do. So I bought it from him. But in any case, I'm looking at the weather report here. It is 75 degrees right now in Sierra Madre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't Rick, don't. I'm telling you, Greg. Like I, as you know, we pay lots and lots and lots of taxes. Yes, you do. Here. And in fact, those taxes by those jerk Republicans are not going to be able to be deducted anymore. Uh, My, I can I can give you the argument why that shouldn't be, but of that's course okay because you're a, a a rabid Republican. No, I'm much to the right of that, Rick. But go ahead, and we will uh, carry on our discussion. Let's do it. All right. First of all, we've got an email. Uh, it's from uh, Mark Nevin, uh, who's a uh, maybe Navin is probably the pronunciation. He's a PA. Wants yep. to know if he should buy his own malpractice insurance. He's employed by a hospital, but concerned about challenges to his license as a result of a malpracticing. That's where you go before the medical board, and you need some good good lawyers to help you at the medical board because a lot of these medical boards are very aggressive in terms of limiting practice. And I asked him, well, Mark, what do these policies cost? And he said they're between $1,200 and $6,500 a year. Big, huge difference. You know what that means, Rick? That means they're totally different in what they cover. And uh, before he thinks about this, well, we'll we'll have a few things to say. Go ahead, continue on. Well, my conclusion was, um, given the spread of the costs, that uh, you wonder exactly what are they covering the same things. I think great minds are thinking like you, obviously. Yes, I'm sure. So um, I said, if you want to spend a hundred bucks a month to sleep better, fine. But I wouldn't do anything more than that. And the likelihood of getting into such a mess that you, your license is in jeopardy seems very, very small. Given the low rate of claims and payouts against PAs who are being supervised in an emergency department. Now, this is not the same thing as a, as a PA in some other environment where the I think the risk is higher. But here, generally, you've got a doctor in the building who can gen who, who can help you out if you get into a problem. So I, I, I think it's fundamentally, it is unnecessary. Yeah. I, Rick, I couldn't agree more. Let's go through the reasons why you don't want to purchase it. Number one, uh, if you get involved in other than malpractice, most of them don't cover going to defend yourself at the licensure board is not covered under most policies. You'd have to look at this very carefully. Number two, I've never seen 
in my 42 years of doing this sort of thing, I have never seen one PA who was the employee of the hospital who ever lost a dime. More than that, uh, you have several other people who are going to be involved in any lawsuit, the physician, consultant, something else. It is unlikely that you are going to carry principal responsibility. The other thing is it's very unlikely if you have a physician involved in some way, shape, or form, that the final determination is going to come down to you. So Rick says, pay a hundred bucks a month and sleep better. I say, send me the hundred bucks and I'll be happy to call you if you need it and, <laughs> and, and just reassure you. But there ain't no way in hell. And remember, I've written malpractice policies. We never cover your problems with the estate. That's your problem. That's not our problem. So there you go. By the way, I loved at the bottom of your email uh, the saying that says politicians and diapers need to be changed often for the same reason. We loved it. We loved it, guy. Thanks a lot. Hey, listen, he did say some really nice things about uh, Risk Management Monthly, and uh, I didn't want to go too much into those, but he, he's a fan. Hold on a second. I want to show you something. So we're on Skype, and uh, uh, you can see the see this, Greg? Yes, it looks like a book, uh, a wonderful bouquet, uh, some arrangement. Yes, it is. And it is um, because it's Diane's birthday today. And uh, we are doing a little celebration of sorts uh, this morning. She's uh, headed to the gym, but we're going to, as they say, do lunch. Okay. We do do that in California. We do lunch. Yes, I understand that. You know, in the East, we don't do stuff like that. You've got a big, big deal report here. Uh, There's an article in, uh, was it, uh, what what paper was it, Greg? Uh, Well, the same article basically appeared in two of the three uh, emergency medicine throwaways of importance. Hey, they don't call them throwaways. uh, Whatever you call them. Non-juried, okay. One of them is uh, EP uh, ASEP Now, uh, which is uh, edited by one of our close friends, and then the other one is EP Monthly, which you and I both wrote for. But the articles are by the same doctor, one of our good friends, Bob Bitterman. Now, understanding that Bob is a friend understanding everything let me tell you right now they're starting two iv lines on me one for labetalol and the other one is sodium nitroprusside because my blood pressure when i discuss this case it goes off the top and if you're an emergency doc let's let's just be honest with our listeners you guys all know when we think something's a big issue and when it's eh, you know doesn't set precedent Alert, alert, stay awake here. Listen to this one because it's not good. And I I want you to pay attention here and see how you're going to take it back at your own hospital and work on it. What is this? Largest monetary penalty in MTALA history imposed on a South Carolina hospital, which has to do with psychiatric patients in the emergency department. Now, uh, again, with full disclosure, Dr. Bitterman um, uh, was an advisor to this hospital during the process. 
And if you think I'm upset, uh, Bob is livid. So let's get into this for a second. Uh, Bob points out in the article in um, in uh, ASAP Now that there's probably nothing more disheartening to an emergency physician than seeing a psychiatric patient come in. Why? Number one, we can't fix them easily. It's not like broken wrists and cut fingers. Number two, they're going to be there forever. We know that. Number three, you're not going to get real psychiatric backup. It never happened in the history of the world. The only time I ever saw a psychiatrist in my department, I guess one time when one cut his finger and needed stitches, and the other one went nuts and was smearing feces on the wall. So if you think there's going to be this cadre of of uh, psychiatrists roaming around waiting to help us out, forget it. It isn't going to happen. In any event, here's the case. You can look it up online. Follow it. AnMed, A-N, capital M-E-D, health. This is a hospital system based in Anderson, South Carolina, recently settled $1.3 million for allegedly failing to appropriately screen and stabilize psychiatric patients uh, presenting to the hospital's emergency department. The Center for CMS and the OIG, you know, those are the people with subpoenas and guns and all that kind of stuff. The agencies for, with the Department of Health and Human Services charge them with, with uh, failure to follow the guidelines of Intala. Now, number one, should they have required, they feel, we required an on-call psychiatrist to come to the emergency department to personally examine all patients with a psychiatric symptom. Oh, my God, help me out. What hospital can do that? Even if you're at the biggest hospital in Southern California, you're not going to get a psychiatrist to come in. But what they're really saying is an emergency physician is not qualified to determine whether a patient is having a Amtala emergency. That's what they're saying, and that's what is the uh, the problem here. Because in a worst-case scenario, they could say, the same thing about chest pain. You need a cardiologist to see all of these patients and an and orthopedist for the back pain. This is, this is a real, real, real challenge to the ability of an emergency physician to determine with a, whether a HICPA-defined emergency exists. And I, they're I, saying that you can, you're not qualified to do it for psychiatric patients. That is the core of this. Right, Exactly. And if you don't think we can do it, who can better do that than us? I see a lot more patients who are psychotic, neurotic, this and that, than most of the psychiatrists here in town. They, you know, psychiatrists like to see uh, mildly shaky uh, neurotics who they can (laughs) give a little medication to. Be nice now. Be nice. Okay. Well, but they don't want tough, mean guys who are going to beat the crap out of them coming in. I don't know any psychiatrists who do that. You know, they want somebody that that, uh, pays their bills, is not drunk and full of drugs, and isn't crazy. None of that exists in the world as I know it. Now, I don't want to sound like I've got prejudicial feelings here, but to think that I'm incapable of seeing these patients, Rick, I'm sorry. I want you to find somebody in the country 
who's more capable than me to see these patients. This is just crap. This is this is crap at a level I've never seen before. Incidentally, they also say they should have admitted an involuntary uh, commitment should have been done on a patient. Uh, and that this hospital does not have a closed unit. They've got a voluntary psych unit. You realize it takes four times the, the personnel to run a closed unit as opposed to an open unit. Just the number of people you need to jump on top of somebody who's fighting and crazy and doesn't want to stay <clears throat> is, is logarithmically bigger. Just the design of the unit, the locking systems, the notification systems, the training of people, totally different. Where they're getting this, I have no idea. The third thing is emergency physicians, uh, they say, inappropriately transferred when they went back and looked at all their cases, inappropriately transported, tra uh, transported unstable uh, psychiatric patients. What do you mean by stable? Stable to me in psych is Leathers and Haldol and to make sure they're not going to uh, choke on the way to going. And by the way, they are six miles, 12 minutes from a state hospital that does take these patients. You know, what the hell are we talking about here? This is nuts. And by the way, when they came and said, well, they're unstable, the hospital asked them, show me one case where a patient deteriorated in their 12-minute transfer <clears throat> to the state hospital. They couldn't do it, Rick. They could not do it. This is well, the, driving me nuts. Well, the thing here is we're allowed to send patients to a higher level of care. And, this, and they don't have to be stabilized to go to a higher level of care. So that's what they're doing. They're sending them to a facility that does have a locked uh, ward, which is what these patients may uh, require. But the idea that you could do this at your own hospital when you're open ward, this isn't re reasonable. So we send people, people who are unstable all the time when we're going to higher level service. And I don't understand how that was not incorporated into this thing. Nobody else understands it either, Rick. And we can't discuss all the aspects of this today, but understand last week in the, at the emergency medicine at ASEPS uh, 17, our national meeting, we did have a meeting between the OIG, CMS, ASEP, and Dr. Bitterman was there uh, as one of the participants in this discussion. Uh, and what you know is this, Washington, D.C. is a city of 47 square miles surrounded by reality, which they tend to ignore. None of those characters had ever been in Ishpeming, Michigan at two o'clock in the morning. If they honestly believe that you're going to do all these things, they're smoking dope. And it isn't even California. And they don't have a medical clearance to use the drug. These people are just plain wrong. But let me continue. I hey, listen, listen, listen. I want you to calm down here. I, 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 the meter's going off the, off the scale here. You know, I'm concerned about you. I don't want to see any uh, blowing of any O-rings or something here. Okay. Uh, well, as calm we're down, talking, calm down. Okay. Uh, 
I promise I'll be a better boy. Okay, here we go. Anyway, if we take this at face value, there's no reason to have the specialty of emergency medicine. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And this is frightening. I, th I think this is absolutely frightening. It totally ignores how this country has run for the last 50 years. It totally ignores the fact that you and I um, basically have more experience in deciding, are they neurotic? Are they psychotic? Are they uh, sociopathic? Our job is to determine, are they medically stable and clear? Do they represent a danger to self and others? Do they need to be admitted? Yes or no. Can we set up outpatient care? Yes or no. I don't give a crap about uh, all the uh, Freudian theory about what may be the trouble with them. I want to know, are you going to kill the family? Yes or no. Are you going to go out and do something really stupid? Yes or no. Have I suspended civil liberties in the past? Yes, I have. I've strapped him down, given him medication. As soon as I get the story from the wife that he's loading his revolver, I've got enough now to act. And I, I don't really think that, again, to have a psychiatrist come in changes what's going on. The other thing is we're perfectly able to determine whether they've got a psychiatric problem or a neurologic problem, an encephalopathy, those sorts of things. And there's a good reason for them to come to us. We're the ones who can tell whether it's a medical condition, a psychiatric condition, a combination. And the big issue is in and out. If you honestly believe that you're going to get psychiatrists in this country to come in to Keokuk, Iowa at two in the morning to make that decision, you're, you're just out of it. I've never seen it. Rick, you were at a medium-sized hospital. How often do the psychiatrists come into your place? It was very difficult to get a psychiatrist. And so uh, there were alternatives. And because it was so chronically difficult in LA County, they set up these uh, psychiatric evaluation teams right. who would come to your hospital generally hours after being requested. Right. And, and the people who came were generally not there. They, they weren't physicians. They may have no, been two years ago. They were patients. Yes, exactly. They, they, they had, they, yeah, they come in with a bone through their nose kind of thing. And you know, there's that I'm here to help you. And it's right. like, who needs the help here? Yeah. And it, the other it, thing it, you had to remember about that is the physician was still in charge. The physician was getting advice from these people about uh, I think they can go home. No, I don't think they can go home. But the ultimate decision remained with the uh, emergency department uh, physician. These people did have the authority to basically kind of put them on 72-hour holds, which, in fact, the physicians in California do not have that authority. You have to have a cop do it or somebody else. Right. And so uh, it, it, it becomes even more uh, tedious to, to deal with this problem. We all acknowledge that the mental health crisis in this country is not being handled well at all, and that the emergency departments are probably the last place that we could uh, expect a reasonable resolution to these cases. Right, and and the psych outreach centers are always located next to a gun and ammo store, <laughs> which is always a problem. Well, but that's in uh, Michigan. Yeah, it's in we're, Michigan. We're a kinder, it, gentler place here, you know. 
it, it may be close next to a, a, a gelato store here. Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Kinder and gentler. Your high, your high school football teams have, have cheers like first and ten or not or whatever. <laughs> uh, are they called like the fighting avocados or something like that? Anyway, um, in the 36 cases which they they looked at, Dr. Bitterman looked at those cases and said in no case – was it difficult for the ER physician to ascertain whether the patient suffered from an emergency medical condition? It was yes or no. Can they act or can't they? He said, there's no, there's no case here where a psychiatrist would have made any difference mm-hmm. in the management. Yes. Of these. And by the way, who were these people? They were known to the emergency department, just like every place I've ever worked. Their chronic psychiatric problems who have gone off their meds, who have done this, who have done that. This isn't rocket science here. And I think that to a great degree, it's insulting that they were th- they would think that we can't do this. By the way, um, do you honestly believe, and this is a quote from, from uh, Bob, that... Uh, is it hard to determine that a 50-year-old man who tried to blow his head off with a 45 caliber revolver is actively suicidal? How tough is this? Are you going to call a psychiatrist? And, you know, we've been beating up on the psychiatrist a little bit. That's okay. But in fairness to them, why would they want to get out of bed to come in and tell you what you already know? I don't understand it. By the way, the vast number of those patients, do you think they're covered by great insurance? Do you think that the that the uh, psychiatrists are all chomping at the bit to come out and do oh, an evaluation? Oh, yeah, but don't go there because uh, we have other kinds of doctors who come in and take care of uh, uninsured patients. I think when a psychiatrist is called, it's generally because we want a consultation. Your case that you described was so... F- obvious that we don't need a consultation in that setting as long as we have some place to put this person. What we want to do, Rick, I think, is get them into the system in some way. The vast majority of times I've called the community mental health, it wasn't that I needed their opinion. And I will point out, I'm still responsible for what happens to that patient when they walk out the door. What I wanted was to get them into the system. (laughs) <laughs> the only their function was to make sure that they got seen the next day, that they did this, they did that. Um, I never had a case that when I decided they need to come in and and be restrained and put in the hospital, I don't think community mental health helps with that. I think their job is to try and find those resources on the outside uh, so that they don't relapse again in a few days. You know, we've heard of these uh, emergency departments who have their hallways filled with psychiatric patients waiting for uh, placement that stay in the department for days. Well, that was one of the complaints uh, uh, here in, in, in the case against uh, ANMED was that they, they were too long awaits. You know, again, Washington, D.C., surrounded by reality. Why don't they wander out someplace uh, into the hills of West Virginia or the plains of Iowa 
and decide what's too long. Uh, I think if you think we're going to handle them like we handle somebody with a rupturing aorta, you're wrong. It won't happen that way. And they need to take this into account. Okay, listen, time to calm down. Is there uh, some kind of appeal process going on here? Or is this uh, non-negotiable? What's the story in terms of the, and now you've heard the rest of the story part. Yeah, yeah, okay. Here's the rest, well, we don't have all the rest because the tapes of the meeting that were done last week between the OIG and CMS and ASEP are still being transcribed. Also, this particular case now holds sway in that federal district. I don't know which number district that is, but it's not, i.e. law, in the rest of the country yet. The problem is it sets a precedent that we do not want. Here's what's going to happen. Um, There's going to be some sort of class action brought by ASAP against the OIG and CMS about this decision. It has to be, Rick. This is the reason we pay dues. And you'll say, well, that's expensive. It's a we don't have a choice here. Because if this becomes law, every hospital in the country is going to come to a grinding, screeching halt. And I have no idea where they think they're going to get more psychiatrists, you know, uh, who can come to the department. Well, we don't want more psychiatrists. That's not the resolution to this problem. The resolution to this problem is to acknowledge that board-certified emergency physicians are capable of ascertaining whether this person has a Imtala-defined, HICPA-defined medical emergency. Yeah, and it's interesting that they've now decided for a hospital like this, which had a small inpatient voluntary psych program, you're now going to take involuntary commitments. This is the first time in the history of Amtala that they've challenged the ability of the hospital to divide its own scope of practice. After all, if you don't have a neurosurgeon, what are they going to next say, well, you got to get a neurosurgeon to come in and operate? No, we transfer those patients because even if they're unstable, it's better they go to a place with a real surgical service than stay in our place. If you look at a sort of an average Midwest state like Michigan, 10 million people, there's maybe a half a dozen hospitals that can do emergency neurosurgery, um, you know, in any short, reasonable period of time. It isn't going to happen in Tequamanan Falls. It just isn't going to happen. You know, this. I think the precedent here of saying, well, this is now what your hospital has to have it's not. I, yeah, that's that's never occurred uh, to my knowledge in the past. You know, I think never. one of the things we ought to do here is uh, I think this is the uh, full employment act for Bob Bitterman, obviously. Yes, obviously. <laughs> for the exactly. foreseeable future. Uh, listen, maybe to everybody. Get- Bob's a great friend of ours, uh, and we think he's doing the best he can here. Okay. Um, maybe we can get him on to uh, the uh, next tape. I think that uh, you have. Uh, explained well what are the issues here and I think that that's kind of what's important and I think the next phase of this is 
where is the resolution uh, going to come from? And that may be a lawsuit or may it, it may be just basically discussions with the involved parties saying, you know, I think you guys have made a mistake here and we need you to rethink this. Yeah. Um, well, but the in, real any, in any case. The, the real problem with this small hospital was they were going to uh, punish them by suspending their ability to bill Medicare and Medicaid. No hospital can exist without that. So essentially they were beaten up into a settlement number rather than fight with the feds. But uh, if you're out there, if you practice emergency medicine, and if you don't think this isn't coming uh, to a theater near you, I mean, we're the trailer here, you know, bombs going off, battles, this, that, and other thing. It's coming to a theater near you, and it's called Your Hospital Emergency Department. Stay tuned. Call ASAP. Tell them you aren't going to take it anymore. Um, this is a useful place for us to spend our our dues dollar, Rick. I promise you that. No, I have no uh, problem with that. ASAP's got lots of money. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It, actually, they do. Uh, so let's let's let this set. You calm down, calm down, and uh, maybe we can get to talk to Bob uh, next month. Um, I, all right. I, uh, let me give you one other update before we get into some of our cases. And I would just want to let you know by looking at the uh, Horty Springer uh, newsletter that the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Eastern District affirmed a multi-million-dollar judgment entered after a jury trial against a hospital and its employee physicians based on the claim that the physician had overprescribed opioids to a patient, causing him to become addicted and resulted in damages to both the patient and his wife. Now, this hospital physician was a emergency doctor. Uh, if you have some problem with this, listen to it again. This isn't Tug Valley. This isn't West Virginia. This is now spread to Missouri. Uh, stay tuned because the, there, there are going to be more of these cases as uh, the plaintiff's bar finds them around the country. Okay, Rick. All right. We got a few uh, other things other than uh, this uh, little uh, case that you're concerned about uh, to cover. Uh, first of all, what's the name of that... Uh, fellow who's at Michigan, the University of Michigan, who came up with this resolution and conflict resolution problem. Richard Bur Boothman. Yeah. Okay. And, and, yeah. A neighbor so, of mine. Yeah. So you guys are kind of like the uh, pioneers in this process of um, talking about errors, telling the family about the error, finding out the cause of the error and compensating the patient. If in fact there was harm done, uh, due to, uh, substandard care. Yes. This, we are the epicenter of this kind of bullshit. You're exactly right, Rick. Hey, I don't think honestly, come on. You didn't mean to say that uh, yeah. it, it just came out, it came out, you know, yeah. you didn't, it just came let, out. Let, let me just say this. Um, you can't start half start one of these programs. You either do it or you don't, because not every doctor is trained to to talk to patients about things that went wrong. Oh, yeah. Listen, doctors, those doctors, probably the hospitals that I know of who do this, they've got people who are trained to tell patients about 
adverse uh, outcomes and who do it in some kind of uh, way rather than, uh, well, I've never been trained in this. I have no experience at it. And I basically screwed it up. So listen, here's an article I got for you. It's entitled Outcomes in Two Massachusetts Hospital Systems give reason for optimism about communication and resolution programs. That's kind of the generic uh, word for this kind of stuff. The main idea here is to disclose adverse events to patients, investigate the cause, explain what happened by somebody who can do it appropriately, apologize, and proactively offer compensation where substandard care caused harm. So this is a study out of... um, Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital and its and two community hospitals associated with it, and Bay State Medical Center, with uh, two of its uh, hospitals. So all in all, it was six hospitals. It took place in 2012. Uh, it should be noted that Massachusetts law required adverse disclosure. So you don't. It's not something that you uh, can decide whether you're going to do or not. AMA basically says adverse disclosure is uh, something that should be done. Here's now a state saying you have to disclose adverse problems. And in addition, they provide legal protection if you make some statements of apology. And we've talked about that in the past where uh, some places where you make a statement of apology that can be used uh, to go against you in court. And uh, other states have said, they're, they're called apology laws, which basically say you cannot enter that into court uh, to suggest that the uh, people are guilty. By the way, the um, apology laws are also referred to as I'm sorry statutes. And basically what they say is saying I'm sorry is not the same as saying I'm guilty. And what they what at least 37 states want to do is uh, make sure that doctors will talk to patients about what went wrong and that it is not fodder for trial. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So sorry. Who sang I'm sorry. that? I'm now I'm sorry I brought that turn up. Hey, that, listen, was Con- what- that was Connie Francis, by the way. Uh, I don't know, but it's Google a tougher error. Google it. Hey, listen, listen, listen. There's another part of this law. So basically, there's the apology part where you can't use it against uh, the folks who apologize in court. Number two, catch this, Greg. Uh, Defendants, basically, you have to, if you're going to sue somebody, you have to tell that people you're going to sue that you're going to file in six months. There's a six-month gap in there where uh, it is hoped that there's the opportunity to settle and resolve the disputes between the parties. So that's really amazing because that means that this lawyer has to sit on this thing for six months while the hospital and and other people, I guess, tried to kind of resolve this thing. I think it's a reflection of the fact that we don't want to take this stuff to court. That's not the place to settle this stuff. Well, this is not unique to Massachusetts. Uh, uh, Michigan has a 180-day notification period uh, that that we're reviewing the case, and in the next 180 days, we have to file this case. So I, I think that it is not uncommon that there's a time of cooling off, rethinking, 
discussion before you actually have to have a lawsuit filed. And that at least in the University of Michigan situation, they have reduced greater than 50% the actual cases that go on to lawsuit at the University of Michigan Hospital. Hey, well, listen, why don't you read or review the results of the study that I just outlined at these six hospitals right. with regards to their events and how it, it came out economically? Well, uh, bottom line is during the 2013-2015 timeframe, uh, there were 989 events reported. Now, we don't divide this up as to how many of these are emergency medicine. Right. So we, we, we can't comment on that. 26% were <clears throat> noted to have violated the standard of care. Um, and, and at least a quarter of the cases, there was some harm to the patient. 91% of adverse events did not meet compensation eligibility criteria. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, Rick, but what but I think this means is well, they wouldn't necessarily have been given money. If there is substandard care, it did not result in any harm. There's you know various permutations of right. that, but, but ultimately patient harm is kind of the common denominator here. Right. Tell uh, us about payments now. Well, median payments in those that met compensation eligibility got an average of $75,000. That's petty uh, cash. Well, that's, yes, that's what we call that now. <laughs> yes. And, and, uh, maximum, uh, offer given in here was $2 million. Can you imagine uh, I, the hospital saying we're, we are going to offer you $2 million because of whatever they did. That's a pretty substantial sum, but it's certainly probably a lot less than may have been gotten in a court battle. Well, the other thing is, and here's the number out of this entire study that I think is worth commenting on. Only 5% of events <clears throat> led to malpractice claims or actual lawsuits. Five percent. I mean, that's pretty good. That what that means is ninety-five percent got resolved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think we can handle that. That's 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 probably pretty reasonable. What what it doesn't say is of those five percent that went on to claims or lawsuits. What happened in those cases? Did they win? Did they lose? We don't know, but. You know, having run two insurance companies, it's the grease of the system, the costs of litigating that grinds you down. It, during my time settling cases, more than 50% of the money went to the grease of the system. Uh, less than 50% went to actually injured parties. So if you can cut that down to 5%, you've really cut a cut a lot of fat out of the system. Well, what Dr. <laughs> Boothman started at the uh, University of Michigan is, has spread out, especially when states now say you have to report adverse events. Yes. So that took away the, uh, you know, well, do we want to do it? Do we not want to do it? And, and there are a whole bunch of systems out there that said this is going to be the way we worked even before there was a, a law. But this is a success story. I think that you'd have to agree and um, it, it's, it seems like common sense. Communication, apology, and resolution is what these programs are called. 
And I think any hospital worth its salt's got to have something like this going. Yeah. I, again, my only warning is, and the university found this out, uh, make sure you have the right personality doing the communication. That means you may not want the second-year resident in neurosurgery. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, talking no. to the family. No, you want to, once there's something that looks like it's going to be a problem, you want to notify the uh, people who are authorized to do this as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, it can't yeah. do it 24-7. And there are things where there's an adverse event that occurs immediately and you have to respond to it so that I think everybody in the hospital on the clinician side needs to be aware of or maybe have some training in this idea of communication and apology. I, I think it has to be done in a timely manner, but I don't want to see our residents running down the hallway into someone's room saying, oh, my God, I killed your mother. You know, that's not the way to handle this situation. You know, I've got good news and bad news. I killed your mother, but the lady in the next room wants to buy her clothes. Uh, don't don't do that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. We want to move on here. Yeah. I've got a paper looking at uh, malpractice suits against PAs and NPs. It's called Physician Assistant and Nurse Practitioner Malpractice Trends by Dr. Brock, who uh, has done a number of papers in this regard. This is the most recent uh, uh, look at this problem, and it's a, and it's a, in a journal I've never heard of called Medical Care uh, Research and Review. This is a 2017 article. It's uh, unfortunately virtually impossible to find articles that are looking at specifically emergency medicine-related uh, cases. So that, you know, and that's kind of the, the case here as well. Uh, let, what did they find? Uh, well, they also, this is from the National Practitioner Database, and right. they found that uh, of these 178,000 medical malpractice or adverse events, Adverse events are things where your medical staff basically has kind of restricted your privileges because you did something uh, like um, maybe you were uh, kind of touching a patient inappropriate or something like that. So it's not necessarily a lawsuit kind of thing or some, some issue of substandard of care. In any case, they reviewed 178,000 uh, malpractice uh, charges or adverse events. 95% of them involved uh, physicians, 3% involved PAs, and 2% involved nurse practitioners. Uh, uh, hold on one second. Here's the problem. We're always going to involve the physician. See, we don't know how much uh, interaction there was with the PA or the NP. Maybe they were just a part of the process. And so whenever you say, oh, they don't get sued as much, uh, the the big gun, the guy at the top, the one with the insurance policy, maybe what we focus on, that doesn't mean there wasn't PA and NP input into these cases, Rick. No, I, I, I fully agree. They do look at um, the frequency uh, per 1,000 providers. Right. So uh, physicians, per 1,000 physicians, uh now, remember, this went, went from 2005 to 2014. Between, if a, for every 1,000 physicians, 11 got uh, named in one of these actions to 19, between 11 and 19. On the right. PA side, 
it was one and a half to two and a half per thousand PAs. So, I mean, it's a tiny fraction. And for right. the uh, NPs, for every thousand NPs, there was 1.1 to 1.4 of these uh, malpractice or, or, or otherwise events. Right. Interestingly enough, diagnostic-related issues occurred more frequently with PAs. Half the cases involved di diagnosis, 40% with the NPs, and 32% with physicians. And this is not the case. I would bet a dollar if it was limited to emergency medicine because we are about diagnoses. And once we got the diagnosis, we can look up how to treat it. But we right. are... So I think that this is this these numbers would not be applicable. I think that in emergency medicine, it is diagnosis, delayed diagnosis. That's it. That's what I, you get sued for. I think uh, particularly for emergency medicine, Rick, it's going to take us 10 years to find out where this balance is. Because from the over the last 15 years, we've seen PA involvement, independently seeing cases, go from damn near nothing to up to 40 or 50% in some groups. So it's going to take a period of time for us to, to see the trend actually level off and find out where they are. But emergency medicine is a unique process, and uh, we, we should we should remember that all the time. You are absolutely right about diagnosis. We do two things. We find it, and we fix it. Uh, PAs in other fields, for example, orthopedic surgery, uh, they get told what to do, putting on casts, that sort of thing. We are the finders and the fixers, and finding it you either do or you don't, and that really sets the tone for us. You know, because of all of these uh, laws now making it more difficult to sue physicians, uh, over time, this is 2005 to 2014, the awards, average reward for a physician case has gone down from 221000 to uh, 195000 PA yep. and NP awards have remained pretty much level at about 112,000. In fact, they've gone up a little bit, 112 to 120,000. So we're going down, they're going up. Uh, and it's surprising that um, these awards for PA and NP involvements are not inconsequential, $120,000. But that's kind of the trend. It's It's been going on for a while. And uh, I agree 100%. We really have no idea what is uh, current because of the delay in all of these cases. What You have to file it. You have to wait a half a year to file it kind of thing. Yeah. So we don't know what's going on now at all. And the idea that a third of patients in emergency departments are being seen by PAs and NPs, there's got to be a lot more interesting stuff going on in the world of malpractice than we know about. Absolutely. And we're, we are in the middle of history. Uh, it's very hard to, de to determine which direction some of this stuff is going in. What, what about, uh, you want some cases, Rick? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, here's a good case presented by Frank Councilman, uh, who's the Associate Editor-in-Chief of Emergency Medicine. This was uh, October 2017. He presented the case of a 52-year-old diabetic with pro progressive right scrotal pain and swelling over several hours. 
No abdominal pain, nausea or vomiting, dysuria, polyuria, fever, chills, and he had normal vital signs. He's a type 2 diabetic. The, uh, the physical exam showed a right testicular tenderness and mild scrotal swelling. 52-year-old eh. guy, diabetic, swelling, tender. I mean, what do you think he's got, Rick? Coming up to this point in time, we've got to be a little bit careful. They did do a color flow Doppler, which shows an enlarged right epididymis with uh, hyperemia. The UA is normal. So he doesn't have a urinary tract infection. Uh, and we know that he's got something going on in the epididymis. The patient was discharged on levofloxacin, not my favorite drug, as a matter of fact, but we can talk about that later, with a diagnosis of epididymitis, told to take ibuprofen, ice the area, uh, elevate the scrotum, and follow up with the urologist in a week. You happy with that, Rick? I mean, Well, you know, they, this is the correct diagnosis. Uh, it would not be nice to know what this fellow's sugar was because... Uh, he was not on any medicines. He declined to take medicines. Right. And uh, that's kind of like a little red red flag. I'd like to know what his sugar was. But in any case, they got the right diagnosis. And I think it's important to acknowledge as this pace, pa uh, paper um, progresses, that just because you have the right diagnosis doesn't mean that, that you can't get into further problems. Well, of course, as, as we mentioned earlier, two parts, find it and fix it. And sometimes you have to fix things a little differently. The patient returned to the ER, and I think this is a red flag within eight hours, with increased pain, but the history and physical were essentially unchanged. I think Just, that's, I think that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit too. I think that if you have more pain, there has to be in your scrotum, which is basically so easily um, assessed. You get more pain in the scrotum. It's got it's got to be more more tender. So that would be a part of the physical exam. I think this is this may be a case where the physician decided I'm going to send him home, and I'm going to create it. I'm going to create the send home chart so that basically he says it, it didn't look any worse to me. I, I, I kind of doubt that. He was switched for pain medication to an opioid. And is to follow up with the urologist in two to three days. The instead patient, of a week. Instead of a week. The patient returned the next morning with increased pain, swelling, plus right inguinal pain, uh, nausea, vomiting, and fever. Blood pressure was normal. Heart rate 110. Temperature 99.8. O2 sat 98. An IV bolus, one liter of saline, was ordered along with a bunch of labs and a repeat Doppler. White blood count, 16,000, glucose, 364, and his lactate, 2.8. Uh, what do you think of a lactate of 2.8, Rick? Well, is it above the normal limit? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, we're, we're a little suspicious, and I'm going to go back and say the blood pressure of 124 over 64 in a 52-year-old guy, that's not a that's not a normal blood pressure for a 52-year-old guy. Well, I, I think that's a, that's a little red flag too. But but it's also easy, of course. We're Monday morning quarterbacking this. But by this time, this guy is clearly sick, and so uh, I think that blood pressure 
was the precipitant of let's give this guy some fluids. We've got some trouble going on here. Okay, here's here's where a problem comes up. And we're going to talk about this in several other cases this month. Broad-spectrum antibiotics were start, uh, ordered, and a urology consult was ordered. Uh, next morning, the hospitalist, who was the one this patient was admitted to, noticed uh, perineal swelling, tenderness, erythema, blood pressure 100 over 60, heart rate 115, despite having received uh, adequate boluses of fluid. Oh, no, come on now. He says it says two liters. I wouldn't say that two liters is necessarily a- adequate. No, They're, but they thought it was because that's what they ordered. Yeah, the they urologi- don't realize that this thing is, 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 going, is, is going down the tubes here. The urologist saw the patient and diagnosed Fournier's gangrene. Uh, that's a bad disease. Uh, more fluids were given. The patient had a debridement uh, in the operating room. The hospital was stormy, had ventilator failure, kidney injury. Patient required a scrotal graft. Uh, and I have no idea where you take the skin from for that. And, uh, you know, maybe Willie Nelson gave some facial skin or something. Suffered from an erectile dysfunction and depression. Everybody was sued. Plaintiff's counsel asserted the urologist should have been consulted earlier and should have seen him at admission. This is an interesting question because a lot of places dump people on the hospitalist who is often an internist, uh, something like that. I think that uh, having the urologist looking at a urological problem is not unreasonable. I think that may be the right thing to do. Defense counsel said everything was consistent with epididymitis, but obviously it was getting worse. Um, and, uh, well, so what do you think happened in the trial, Rick? Well, you know, physiologically, yeah, they were right. The diagnosis was epididymitis, but epididymitis got worse and spread. And this bacterial infection that was in one spot became involving the perineum of this diabetic. And, um, this thing slipped away, the slipped Right in front of them, this this thing kind of occurred. Uh, what what was the question you asked, doctor? What do you what, think? What do I think of that trial? What what did the jury decide? Well, you know, I tend to I t- I tend to vote in favor of the patients more often than not. I, uh, but and but I don't think it came out that way in this case, did it? No, actually, um, and I, as conservative as they come. Probably would have gone with the patients on this case. There you go. Two for two. But it was a defense verdict. Good lawyering, man. Good lawyering. Good good lawyering. And Dr. Councilman makes some teaching points. He said, beware the returning patient. Guys back in eighties. Well, that's a surprise. But you know what? How many times have you seen it where they didn't beware the returning patient? Even if the first diagnosis is correct. Even if appropriate treatment was given, patients can still be getting worse. And that requires something. Um, I think he pointed out very well that when you come back in for the second time with a urologic problem, maybe your urologist should have been called. See, I don't think that that would be unreasonable. Well, he makes the point, and I think that this is really the case, that these people who come back need more scrutiny. Um, What's going on? If they've been labeled with the diagnosis 
that label is can say, oh, okay, well, we know it's an epididymitis. It's probably, you probably hear some more pain pills because we know it. what in fact, this is an epididymitis that is now ex- expanding. And so he's saying, and I agree that these people need more scrutiny, not less scrutiny. Uh, despite the increasing pain, no labs were done. And the exam was documented as essentially unchanged, which I, which I doubt, frankly. All right, Rick. Um, I, I think we've made the principal points on this. Uh, Dr. Councilman has another case. Uh, give it to us here. 85-year-old man involved in a motor vehicle accident presented by a paramedic seatbelt on. He was the driver of a car that was rear-ended. His only complaint was neck pain. Posterior C-spine was tender. Neuro exam, including, catch this, strength and sensation in all four examinees was normal. Do you think that really happened? Um, um, it would if I was seeing the patient, but that's all right. Plain C-spines uh, were done. Advanced degenerative changes were found. That was about it. And analgesic was prescribed and, di- and the patient was discharged. And <laughs> the next morning he woke up paralyzed. Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm going to make this statement. I'm not sure what the use of the plain C is. Hey, we're going to get is. there. Don't, okay. don't bring up this thing. You know, don't, right. don't, don't jump the gun here. The guy's 83. He's going to have a funky-looking C-spine if you just pick them randomly, Rick. Damn, you know, you took my thunder here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he basically went back to the hospital, <laughs> this time by EMS for sure, because he couldn't move a, move it a, a thing. <laughs> right. CT scan tr- showed transverse fracture of C6. Re-read, uh, uh, reread of the plain X-ray was positive for a fracture as well. Uh, he never recovered his movement, and he died six months later. Settlement was for one point three million dollars, which is, you know, not cheap, cheap, not all that cheap. much. But the guy was eighty three, number eight, eighty three. So actuarially, he should have died five years previously, and uh, he, he has no issues about lost income or those kinds of things. So this is just kind of for pain and suffering and misery um, uh, and premature death. But in any case, the real question here is the plain C-spine x-ray dead. And and Greg, you wrote a chapter for the EMA courses, which everybody's going to be attending coming up this year. Everybody. About is the C-spine x-ray dead? And I took the liberty of putting two articles in here to wake up the world about, about this. The first paper is entitled Limitation of the Cervical Spine Radiograph in the Evaluation of Acute Trauma. This paper was published in 1993. Of 216 consecutive patients with cervical spine injuries, two-thirds of the fractures and 45% of the subluxations were missed on plain films that were diagnosed on CT. Two-thirds? Two-thirds of the fractures were missed? Yeah, now there's been, Rick, you hear this argument all the time that, well, they're nothing burgers, they're ditzels. The point is they are missed. Uh, You move the patient around less doing a CT scan than you do positioning them uh, for, uh, you know, five five views of the neck. And, And I think this is important. Every patient is different. The average 83 year old, I think, has a difficult C-spine to read. They're going to have more degeneration. They're going to have this spurs, all kinds of stuff. I honestly believe that the CT scan picks this stuff up better. And if if, Greg, 80, if I'm going to do an X-ray on an 83-year-old, 
I'm going to do the CT scan, Rick. If you care about the results of your imaging of the neck, then do a CT. If you don't care about the results, if you're going through the motions kind of thing, right. because somebody was in a little fender bender guy, they think, oh, fine, get a plain x-ray. There's a second paper here. Yeah. It's entitled, Are Five View Plain uh, Films of the C-Spine Unreliable? A prospective evaluation in blunt trauma patients with altered mental status. Now, this is a subset altered mental status. I agree that this is uh, not the uh, normal patient. Right. So this is a study of 1,006 blunt trauma patients with altered mental status. 172 had cervical spine injuries. Here's the data now. Plain films missed 52 injuries including five of 29 unstable fractures when CT was the gold standard. Radiographic evaluation was particularly difficult in elderly patients. It's obvious. It's obvious. The plain film is dead for when you care. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody don't knows care. that. If yeah. you don't care, order, order a Barry Menema for crying out loud. That's about as, as valuable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about, that's just about right, Rick. And I think that, uh, uh, you can't. This study is a difficult one to use because this had altered mental status. I want to know. I honestly want to know a traumatic patient with altered mental status. Why would you do anything else than a CT of the head and neck? Af after all, the, it takes you two seconds longer right. to get that level. Right. And then you I, answer I, the question: Yes I or guess no. The point of this paper is. CT picked up stuff that plain films didn't. Altered right. mental status or not is was was really kind of not the issue. It is just the issue of what is the more accurate test. And there's no question about this. And they even mentioned, particularly in the elderly. All right, Greg, we have um, we have time for another one. Uh, we have about 10, 12 minutes to go here. So uh, you want to do another one? Sure. Um, all right. Here's here's one another Dr. Councilman case, and we ought to take a second to thank Frank uh, for uh, these wonderful things. He didn't he's volunteer been, these, to tell you the truth. I know that, but uh, we took him out of emergency medicine. That's just fine. This is September 2015. 24-year-old gave birth four days prior to going to the ED for symptoms of shortness of breath. Okay, 24-year-old woman, I assume it's a woman, said she gave birth, uh, and now she's short of breath. Now, you only got a couple things here that are going to bring this on. Physical exam was entirely normal except for some mild pretibial edema. Uh, vital signs, normal temp, heart rate 86, respiratory rate 18, uh, blood pressure 164 or 96, and by the way, uh, there's no uh, there's no pulse ox given here. I thought that was now the sixth, fifth or sixth vital sign, but we'll see. An extensive workup for PE was performed, including a CT uh, angiogram, which was normal. The patient was discharged home with a diagnosis of shortness of breath of unknown etiology. Oh, and by the way, it it doesn't. It doesn't say whether her uh, obstetrician was contacted. Doesn't say who else was involved in this. I can tell you, he wasn't. He wasn't. I summarize this case. She returned two days later with the same symptoms. A repeat. <laughs> oh God! Talk about get some radiation here. They did another uh, CT angio performed, which was negative. 
the patient was discharged with the same diagnosis and advised to follow up with her OB. On the following day, she returned again, this time by EMS. Um, and uh, that's never a good thing. Now you're three times in. Physical exam was essentially the same as on day one. She got four grams of mag sulfate and her OB consulted. That's because she came in with multiple seizures. Um, uh, lordy, lordy, uh, the result of um, postpartum eclampsia. Right, exactly. And uh, her seizures, uh, and she died on the fourth hospital day. The allegations, failure to diagnose, pre, uh, it shouldn't be preeclampsia, it's post-eclampsia, and then never consulted her OB. Uh, the EP, uh, the emergency physician, and the hospital settled. Uh, a sad but a great case of anchoring bias, which is, if you read Pat Crosscarry, it's a fixation on one or more diagnosing, ex ignoring information or the changing pattern of the patient. Um, uh, uh, you want to Give yeah. what Dr. Councilman observes here. Well, you know, this this anchoring bias, this case is probably the world's most egregious example of anchoring bias. Two PE workups within several days, both of them negative, and, and no explanation for the shortness of breath. Right. This anchoring bias is fixation on one diagnosis. But the, a key part of this is ignoring information not consistent with that diagnosis. Like, look at this blood pressure or this pretibial edema. This is a sad case because I'm quite sure that either two things occurred. One, this doctor never heard of postpartum uh, eclampsia. And so if you never heard of it, you can't make a diagnosis that you've never heard of. Or it just kind of totally slipped by him or her that this was the case, that yeah, that if you ask the doctor, have you ever heard of postpartum preeclampsia? He said, holy smokes, is that what this is? Because they, they know, but it just never comes to the forefront of their cortex. 90% of what we see in the emergency department challenges about 10% of our knowledge base. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we <clears throat> do retake the boards every 10 years. Yes, so we you, do. And we're going to so, keep on doing that. <laughs> I worked on that. And, we, and, we, we, and we're going to keep on having board review courses to help you pass that exam. Well, the, the truth of the matter is all of us have this huge 10 year period of time when we don't see a lot of things. They just don't come in the yeah, door. We're going to talk about that. This is a, this is a pretty uncommon situation. And because you, it's uncommon, it's easily, Missed over. What did Dr. Councilman have to say about this? Uh, he had, well, uh, he had nothing good to say about this. Uh, he says the negative identical workup for PE without all the usual things that come along with it should have immediately knocked this diagnosis out. Well, now, yeah, she, he's saying you got to think of other things. You're right. just keeping on focusing on this over and over again. You got to widen your diagnosis. Well, this isn't an 80-year-old with COPD. This is a 24-year-old who just gave birth. I like his second point. The diagnosis of shortness of breath of unknown etiology is, quote-unquote, unacceptable. In he this says, case, can, yeah. He said, you can do that with abdominal pain when we don't know the etiology, but we know it's not surgical. 
but you can't do that with shortness of breath. He gives us a little more information too, and says that uh, postpartum pre pre or, uh, it's actually post. Well, she had preeclampsia when she came in. Uh, they, right. They don't. It can develop up to four weeks um, after birth. But certainly the vast majority, 90-some percent, are within the first week uh, following delivery. And it's, it's not that common, but it's common enough that it should be in the differential diagnosis. Yeah, he says that um, in one study, uh, postpartum preeclampsia represented about 6% of the cases, of the, all of the cases of preeclampsia, 6% occurred after the child was born. But take a right. look at how many of those went on to develop eclampsia. One yes. in six of those went on to develop eclampsia. So 6% and 16% of 6%. So it's very, very uncommon. And unfortunately, because it's so uncommon, this diagnosis totally went by the emergency physicians. Look at the... Uh, uh, presenting symptoms. Headache is the most common presenting symptom, 70% right. of the cases. 30%, however, the presenting symptom is shortness of breath, 20% blurry vision, nausea in 12%, and epigastric abdominal pain in 5%. It's a real tragedy uh, because this is probably could have been averted. And I'm sure the physician involved with this feels absolutely terrible because in retrospect, it was like, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Yeah. No, this is this is not a good case. Uh, Rick, what's our time like? Greg, we have about uh, uh, seven or eight minutes. Um, now there is a, one last case here, which is um, I think we could we could get through it quickly. Uh, don't you Go think? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. We can. Fifty-nine-year-old man presented to the EDD with a headache, was getting worse over two days. He was on warfarin for a DVT. <laughs> okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. His <laughs> exam was entirely normal, as was his CT of the head. His INR was therapeutic. He was discharged after symptoms improved with prochlorperzine, otherwise known as compazine, and, and diphenhydramine, otherwise known as Benadryl, and given advice to follow up. Well, those medicines are kind of the migraine medicines. I don't know what they were thinking about a 59-year-old. 59-year-olds don't get migraine in any case. So over the next several months, the patient returned to the same emergency department, Greg, seven times. Yes, I, Rick, <laughs> I know this. Times. And each time, or, or, or all exams were recorded as unremarkable, <laughs> although the thoroughness of the exams varied from chart to chart. Okay, for his eighth visit, he went to another <laughs> ED where the CT scan showed a large subdural hematoma which was evacuated uneventfully after IV vitamin K and fresh frozen plasma were given. Uh, I, th I think we would have probably given a few other things these days. Uh, but the patient claimed his cognitive functions were impaired, and he went ahead and sued the first emergency department. His attorney claimed that a CT scan should have been done at all each and every visit. What do you think about that, Rick? Oh, I think I think that that would be a little nutty. First of all, yeah, it should have freaking had seven visits for, for crying out loud. I mean, that is that must be some kind of a record of, oh, oh. of screw ups. And listen, you oh, know, you're one wrong, of the Rick. things there there are follow ups 
listen, I've seen people 10 times in, in two months. That doesn't mean we missed something for sure. Hey, hey, the, the defense guy said, well, we, we, we don't know when this brain, brain bleed began. Well, for crying out loud, he, he came in with a headache that was getting worse over a two-day period. When do you think the headache, uh, uh, you know, the brain bleed began? You just didn't see it on the first CT. Maybe it was missed. It doesn't specifically say that. So I, I'm kind of like a little disconcerted because normally these things kind of come like the second day and the third day. Right, uh, right, right. I mean, you're being a crybaby here, Rick. Uh, you and I have all seen patients, you know, you don't see them and the CT scan on a fourth generation scanner, uh, you know, there are people who are advocating that, that we rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage based on that and not do a spinal tap anymore. Uh, you don't, you, just because he came in doesn't mean they missed a treatable disease at that moment in time. Well, they they certainly would not have gone into his head and to drain nothing, Rick. Well, look at the defense uh, verdict. Yes. I mean, this this guy, this guy lost after going to seven times to the same emergency department. And I, to tell you the truth, you know, it's like if this is big enough to evacuate, it's been pressing on his head probably for a while. It's like, I don't think this guy had a very good lawyer to tell you the truth. I think he could have gotten some money out of this, but in any well, case, you're in the wrong business, Rick, you should have gone into law with your wife. The two of you could have had a, uh, a, a joint practice there doing all this kind of hey, stuff. Listen, we're but, running out of time here. Tell us what Dr. Oh, Councilman observed here. Uh, well, Councilman said that there's a lot of advice, uh, on how to manage, these patients. It's, it's, uh, it's a tough situation, actually. It's a tough situation. And admission, admission to me means nothing. It's what you do after you admit them. Exactly. You admit them to who, and what are you going to do? I hate the term, just admit them, because if they're not going to have something done, you might as well admit them to Howard Johnson's. They might as well go, they might as Howard well go Johnson? to- Howard Johnson? They still yeah. have Howard Johnson's where you are? Well, we're behind. We're 20, 30 years behind, Rick. Um, so who gets a repeat CT scan is not an, is an interesting question. The prophylactic reversal of his anticoagulants, should that have been done after the first visit? And you know what? If he'd gone on and, uh, you know, thrown an embolus from his mitral valve or whatever it is, we'd be sued for that. Well, I, don't, was, was I don't think this is a simple a, case. Uh, a DVT, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, you wonder, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that you have to ascertain uh, how legit the DVT is, how long has he been on anticoagulant therapy, because a lot of times they just pull the numbers out of their butt with regard to how long you need to be on that stuff. So there's some other kinds of things here, but I think that the thing that strikes me is seven visits, right. seven visits. Rick, Rick. I know it doesn't look good. It doesn't it taste doesn't, good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't pass good. the sniff test. It doesn't pass the sniff test. All right. But you and I have all been involved in it. We got a minute here? We have a, a quick minute for your wine of the month. And now don't give us a long drawn out kind of thing. Just give it to me. You know what? It is beer of the month. You'd leave a half hour for it. But uh, let me say last night, uh, Paul Kivala who's the new incoming president of ASAP, 
Um, you know, he's a lovely man. Uh, he's got a gorgeous wife. He owns a vineyard in Napa Valley. You see, so I live in a dumpster. I got two pet rats, and this guy <laughs> has a vineyard in Napa Valley in any event. Um, he gave me a bottle of his 2011 Syrah, which they had produced. My wife and I had it for dinner last night. It's terrific. It is Kivala Vineyards. Uh, whether they got this for sale or not at this point, I have no idea. But, uh, Paul, if you run the college as well as you run your vineyard, you're okay with me, man. You're you're in good shape. Let me yeah, give you congratulations, Paul. It's been a, a long uh, battle for you to kind of, uh, you, you know, you should probably should have been president last year. But the fact of the matter is, is you hung in there, and uh, congratulations. Yeah, I think I think the uh, congratulations are in order. Now, a trivia question for you. You know, when you did, I'm sorry, and I told you it was Connie Francis, Kathy Klein. Uh, okay, the next question is, uh, who played Davy Crockett? Oh, Fast Parker. Yes. Well, his winery continues, and uh, he's he's what they call the Mid-Coast region in California. He, he, own, he owns most of the central portion of the uh, coast of California. Well, I, I, I think he's dead, but you're right. His estate does. In any event... Uh, his wines have come up like crazy, and in fact, if he was in Napa, they get three times as much money. He's got right now a 2015 Chardonnay, the Ben uh, Nacido Vineyard, <clears throat> Ben Nacido Vineyard. This is Santa Maria Valley, 40 bucks for a wine that if it came from, oh, you know, any of the big Napa names would be three times that. And uh, it's now considered by a guy who I trust, who writes the reviews, he gives it a 93 rating, which puts it with some of the great wines of, of uh, France and says, don't spend all that money, buy the Fest Parker 2015. So there you go, Rick. Greg, that is December 2017. Uh, uh, I know you're going to have some visits with relatives. Uh, and I, I wish you a great holiday if I don't talk to you uh, before next year. Well, listen, Rick, it's always uh, it's always a pleasure and an honor uh, to participate with you on these things. And uh, I wish I had more to offer. But uh, uh, well, you know, I, I do, too. Uh, but, yeah. you know, what, what are you going to do? You got to work uh, with what you have. And I think you should send me a bill for the psychotherapy for getting to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> that one Mtala case. Uh, I feel better now. And I, I've released all that. You get that out of your system. That's good. OK. Hey, listen, uh, thanks for being with me. Talk with you next time. Bye for now. Bye bye.